Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 170, The Conquest of Armenia. There were inverted commas around conquest, if you couldn't tell. I know we've had quite a few uh, interruptions to our end-of-the-century tour, but we are moving east across the Byzantine world of 1025. We started in Italy, passed through the Balkans, paused a while in Constantinople, and now find ourselves on the Eastern Front. We actually covered quite a lot of the issues here back in episode 145, The Eastern Conquests. There we talked about the capture of Melitene, Tarsus, Antioch. The towns that had once been the launching pads for jihad were all now in Roman hands. There was a sense then that perhaps the Byzantines would attempt to reconquer their old provinces. John Zimisces had marched deep into Syria, and some propaganda claimed that his eyes were fixed on Jerusalem. But then John died, and Basil II took over. The young emperor spent twenty years being assaulted by the heirs of the great generals, a process which knocked any enthusiasm for conquering adventures out of the Vasilevs. Once he'd finally seen off the eastern magnates, Basil was hardly likely to entrust any general with the glamorous task of marching into the Holy Land. And yet Basil is remembered as a conqueror. Not only was he the Bulgar slayer, but he also pushed the eastern boundary of Romania further into Armenia than it had ever gone before. From the narrative you know about this process, Basil dedicated his life to breaking the army trying to turn it into a loyal beast that would no longer threaten his throne. So he took it out on campaign every year to keep the men occupied and used it to flatten the harsh edges of his realm. The Bulgarians were pushed into submission over the course of a decades-long campaign, and once that was over, Basil turned east, marching deep into the Armenian mountains to deal with those who had supported his enemies. Yes, it all came back to the civil wars he'd fought against Bardas Phocas and Bardas Skleros. Both men had relied on the support of Armenian and Caucasian leaders to fund and fuel their campaigns. Just as Basil did not want unruly Bulgarians damaging his prestige, he wanted to eliminate those who would seek common cause with Eastern magnates. I suspect many of you have already forgotten about Basil's campaigns in the mountains. I'm not blaming you. 
They were forgettable and achieved quickly. They didn't leave long-lasting memories as the Bulgarian wars did. But the result of a couple of years of campaigning was to add a massive new chunk of territory to his realm. I went on Google Maps and did some very, very rough calculations. A Roman could now set off from his or her former borders and walk between 400 and 600 kilometers east without leaving the empire. And they wouldn't have to be picky either. They could start their journey anywhere along a north-south axis of about 700 kilometers. These were giant acquisitions, and we need to talk about them and what they mean for Byzantium. I've toyed with the format of this episode quite a bit, and I think I'm just going to cut straight to the conclusion. In episode 164, we talked about how modern maps distort the extent of Roman control over Bulgaria. I see memes and YouTube videos parroting the line that Basil reincorporated the whole of the Balkans, or at least the length of the Danube, back into the empire. And this simply isn't true. The Romans took control of the Bulgarian state. They placed their own garrisons and administrators at the top of the pyramid, but otherwise left it to function as it had before. I described it as a corporate merger. The smaller company continued to function as it had done, but the management were replaced by those from the larger corporation. That description remains very relevant for the takeover of Armenia. Though modern graphics show the Roman border advancing deep into the mountains, anyone visiting the area would have been in no doubt that this was Armenia. The imperial takeover was even lighter than in Bulgaria, in part because Armenia was such a foreign place. It had never been Roman before, and imperial agents had little familiarity with its terrain or its language. And in part... Because Armenia was not captured or defeated by Basil, it fell willingly into his arms. If Bulgaria was captured in a hostile takeover, Armenia was more like a sports franchise purchased by a new owner. The various Armenian princes and potentates who handed over their kingdoms to Basil did not anticipate that their descendants would speak Greek or be uniformly orthodox. They simply retired from their office and entrusted it to a Roman governor. But the office would remain the same. In the analogy, the sports team would head out the following week to play their regular fixture using the same methods and tactics they always had. It's just that a different owner was now sitting down watching them from the corporate boxes. In other words, Armenian life would continue as before under Roman management. The complex nature of Armenian society and geography made it doubtful that the Romans would stay forever. Basil was strong now. Now was the time to ask him for a golden watch and an index-linked pension. The rulers who took this deal probably understood that in a generation or two, their countrymen would be back in charge of their own destiny, and the flummoxed Romans would be back down by the sea where they belonged. Naturally, I am simplifying a complex topic, but the important point is that the Roman takeover in Armenia was quite different to anywhere else. 
At Melitine, for example, you had a Muslim emirate whose purpose was to wage war on the enemies of Islam. When the Romans took over, they had to eradicate this ideology, so they asked Muslims to leave or convert. Those that left were replaced by colonists from Christian backgrounds. The city would still seem quite foreign to someone from Constantinople, but it was now a friendly place, one whose purpose was geared toward cooperation with Byzantium. At Preslav, by contrast, the population were Orthodox Christians, but Slavic speakers who had become accustomed to seeing the Romans as their enemies. So a sensitive governor and a loyal garrison were needed to keep the peace, and language schools had to be established to educate locals how to govern in the Roman way. Now up in the mountains, the Romans were taking over towns that hadn't been at war with Byzantium at all. The locals were Armenian speakers, Christians, but probably not Orthodox. Um, but perhaps most relevantly, they would be confused by any suggestion that the empire was now in charge of their fate. This wasn't really part of the deal. No conquest had taken place. It was a peaceful transfer of authority where both sides expected life to go on almost exactly as it had done before. So the Romans sent in commanders to take charge of the military situation, and naturally some troops followed, but a lot of the soldiers employed by the new governors were the existing Armenian forces. Some administrators arrived, but they relied almost exclusively on the existing administrative apparatus. Now you might be thinking, why would Basil take such a deal if Roman control was going to be so loose? Again, we go back to the civil wars, an experience which had such a huge effect on Basil's worldview. The reason he came to Armenia in the first place was to punish David of Tau. David's support had sustained Bardas focus during his years of rebellion. Basil made it clear that he would not let this stand. He was gunning for David, and it wasn't just a personal vendetta. He didn't want David's kingdom to go on existing as a potential ally for the magnates right on the borders of Romania. David understood this, and so he made a deal. He would live out the rest of his days in peace and watch the border for Basil, and upon his death, his lands would pass to the empire. David understood that this wasn't about turning his people into Romans. It just meant that a governor loyal to Basil would inherit his position instead of one of his relatives. It's not like Tau was a peaceful, obedient realm. Like most Armenian rulers, he was constantly active, securing support, fighting rivals, and jockeying for position. Now, all of that would be Basil's problem. If the emperor tried to march in and impose Roman discipline, <laughs> good luck. There were a thousand hiding places for Armenians who didn't want to deal with an unpopular ruler, whether it was in inaccessible mountain communities or hidden fortresses or in a neighbouring kingdom. There was little chance of the Romans changing the ways of Armenia, so David's decision made sense for his own side. And Basil? Well, Basil could hardly say no. He wanted a passive and obedient neighbour. The only way to ensure that was to annex Tau and install a Roman governor. To emphasise the point about how tricky the area would be to govern, as soon as David died, 
his neighbours occupied various forts and refused to hand them over to the Romans. Basil waited patiently for 20 years before finally securing the situation to his satisfaction. Once there, in the 1020s, Basil was extremely violent. According to the Armenian sources, he used his exemplary punishments to show what would happen to those who resisted the Roman takeover. This show of strength was so impressive that two other senior Armenian leaders decided to throw in the towel. They offered the emperor their kingdoms in exchange for generous settlements within the empire. Again, what was Basil to do? He knew that he was about to accept responsibility for alien and complex places, but if he refused, he would gain irritable neighbours who would be even more likely now to support those who agitated against the throne. If you recall, during these campaigns, Bardas Phocas's son Nicephorus rebelled against the Vasilefs, with the support, it was assumed, of various Armenian leaders. This confirmed to Basil the necessity of taking over these border fiefs. Yes, it meant permanently employing more soldiers and administrators to govern distant lands, but it would cut support from foreign powers to potential rebels, and Basil had learnt the hard way that this was a price worth paying. I know some of you may struggle to accept the odd sight of foreign nations acquiescing to Roman occupation so meekly. But let me read you a couple of quick quotes to try and shed some light on the situation. This is from the Cambridge History of the Byzantine Empire. When one considers the fragmented, isolating topography of the central Caucasus region, the individual districts of varying size, wealth and potential, the harsh continental climate, the dispersed settlement pattern focused upon the village, the frontier status of the region throughout this period, the lack of organic national political institutions, the long-standing doctrinal divisions within the Armenian church, the presence of different dialects and languages, even the potential for different interpretations of the past, one can only conclude that Armenia and Armenian identity are complex and elusive terms defying concrete definition and characterized by fluidity and plurality. Instead of maintaining the fiction of a united Armenia or a singular Armenian identity, Armenian diversity and incongruity deserve to be highlighted. How's that for a breezy summary? The point I hope you take away is that these weren't small patriotic kingdoms full of people concerned about incoming Roman influence. These were disparate collections of people with extremely local loyalties who might not sense much difference between the rule of David of Tau and of the new Roman governor. The next quote is from Mark Witto's book, The Making of Orthodox Byzantium. Here he is talking specifically about the Roman conquest, Byzantium being the outside power referred to. As in earlier periods of the history of Armenia and the Transcaucasus, it seems essential 
to see this process not only in terms of the policies and interests of the outside power, but also in terms of how the local nobility made use of outsiders to serve their own ends. For all Transcaucasians, the predominant feature of this period is the collapse of any effective great power rival to Byzantium in the region. Armenian and Georgian politics remained fragmented by geography and kinship and in need of outside resources to support the power of local rulers. Politics was at one level a constant attempt to involve outsiders in one's own cause and to overturn the alliances of one's rivals. But with the collapse of the caliphate, these schemes had to be pursued in relation to Byzantium. The empire could certainly be a threat, but it was above all a great jam pot to be exploited. One can see these years as an Armenian and Georgian conquest of Byzantium just as much as a Byzantine conquest of the Transcaucasus. Here again we see a quite different perspective on the Roman conquest than one might expect. Here, the departing monarchs are the real winners. They secured for their families hugely lucrative lands and titles in the Byzantine Empire and left the Romans with the hard work of defending and administering their realms. As I say, it's all a simplification, of course, but I hope it gives you a flavour of what was really going on behind the Roman acquisition of these areas. For more on how Armenian politics worked, you can re-listen to episode 112, or drop me a line and I'll help you find these books. Since we've begun with the conclusion, I'll just keep going. Forty years after Basil's death, this area will be swarming with Seljuk Turks. The steppe riders will smash through Armenia, penetrating deep into Anatolia itself. As a result, the Byzantine emperor will have to march all the way to Manzikert, a town near Lake Van, to seek battle. And, well, you know the rest. Blame has thus been placed on Basil for dangerously overextending the empire. This is a criticism that I disagree with. As we're discovering, there wasn't much extension of the empire, really, let alone overextension. The Roman occupation of Armenia was light and largely paid for itself. It is true that by having to defend Armenia, the Romans denied themselves a defensible position from which to face down the invading Turks, but in 1025 there was no sign of the Seljuks. Even after the defeat at Manzikert, it wasn't clear in Constantinople that the Turks would settle in Anatolia, or that they presented such an existential threat to the empire. Basil can't be blamed for lacking foresight on this issue. The most dangerous foreign enemies he faced were the Fatimids, and he'd left the largest garrison in the empire at Antioch to face down any hostility from that direction. Other than that, his life experience told him that the Bulgarians could do tremendous damage in the west and that overmighty magnates could strike from the east. He had solved both problems neatly. Each was now the seat of a Roman governor appointed directly by him. There you go then. Episode concluded. 
I thought it was important for you to absorb the overall picture before we got into any details. Because as ever with Armenia, they are complicated and obscure. Let's try to keep things simple. For those who want to know more about the conquests, I've put up some maps on the website. One is an update to our base map of Anatolia. On it, I've simply marked the four areas which we've discussed in the narrative. In the north is Tau, which now extended Roman rule east from Theodosiopolis. South of that is Tehran, which was donated to Nicephorus Focus back in the 960s. And south and east of Lake Van is Vaspurakan. This was the kingdom handed over to Basil's agents just before the emperor's death. The final place of note is Ani, the royal capital of the Bagratuni clan. This was pledged to Basil on similar terms to Tau, so it would only pass to Roman control upon the death of the current ruler, which would happen in 1045. You can see it on the edge of the map, past Tau in the northeast. As we've touched on, none of these small kingdoms were like a modern nation-state. They were all agglomerations of people and places which the various rulers had cobbled together over the decades. However, the Romans did not attempt to subdivide them further. They appointed governors to rule each area as a distinct territory, as it had been left to them. This would minimise disruption and local resentment. I've posted a couple of other maps, too, which will give you more information about these areas. In general, I've always avoided giving a detailed tour of Armenia. Its fragmented landscape is difficult to delineate, and the Romans are rarely here for long. But it's worth saying that it was not a poor place. It lacked the good countryside or climate of the Mediterranean, but there was grazing land and there were fertile plains. Its main source of wealth, though, were the trade caravans that had to pass through it to reach the Caliphate or Byzantium. The northern and steppe worlds brought goods south, and in return the wares of the great civilizations went the other way. Armenia was more than capable of paying tax to its new Roman overlords, but it's doubtful if there was much surplus beyond what was needed to feed and supply the new garrisons and officials. It's worth saying that in the majority of the new territories, Roman coins were the only currency used. Even the Bagratuni kings of Armenia had stopped minting their own by the mid-10th century. Our understanding of how the Roman administration worked is limited, but it seems that it was as arm's length as possible. Very few lead seals have been found denoting everyday Roman administrators, only really those relating to very high-placed officials and generals. The analysis of modern historians suggests that local affairs were dealt with by local people. Justice and tax collection continued to operate as they had done before, and money was then simply handed over like tribute to the Roman governor. One of the few pieces of direct evidence we have comes from Annie in the 1060s. Instructions on how local taxation was to function were inscribed on the west wall of the city's cathedral. 
It was written in contemporary Armenian so that locals could read it, and it listed the administrators that they should deal with, depending on which quarter of the city they lived in. All had Armenian names, carrying modest Byzantine titles. It's a nice example of the arm's-length approach. Rather than pay Romans to trek into the mountains and learn local conditions, the government just put official titles to the names of the local tax collectors and told them to get on with it. Even the local garrison was likely to be staffed by Armenians. There might only be a few dozen actual Romans in the city. Very little attempt seems to have been made to impose any kind of Romanness on the Armenians. A partial exception to this rule can be seen in the sphere of religion, where the number of Orthodox or Chalcedonian establishments did increase during the Roman occupation. The Armenians had converted to Christianity around the same time that Constantine did, but rather than bring them closer to the Romans, it proved to be a point of permanent differentiation. The Armenian church leadership rejected the famous Council of Chalcedon, creating a permanent division between the two ecclesiastical authorities. Constantinople always viewed the doctrines of the Armenian Apostolic Church as being monophysite in character. I won't attempt to get into the nuances, but each side viewed the other as heretical from that point on. In keeping with the fragmented nature of Armenian society, though, a Chalcedonian Armenian church did also develop. But this did not mean that they became a Roman faction in the mountains. The Armenian Chalcedonians refused attempts to bring them into line with the Greek-speaking church, and proudly translated religious texts into their own tongue. The Romans did tend to favour Chalcedonian Armenians during their time in charge. Many men from this background rose quickly in the administration, but there was no concerted effort to force them on the rest of their countrymen, as far as we know. The relationship between the Romans and the Armenians has always been a very typical human story. On the one hand, there is plenty of evidence of casual and concerted racism on both sides. Roman literature is full of examples of men and women calling the Armenians lazy, untrustworthy, greedy, and so on. And yet, throughout the Byzantine period, Armenians were regularly welcomed with open arms into every institution of the empire. Similarly, various Armenian historians castigate the Romans as treacherous, effeminate, dishonest, and so on. Yet, for centuries before and after the Caliphate, the Romans peacefully governed Armenian populations. In fact, at this point, Armenians were ubiquitous throughout the Roman East. Once you passed through Cappadocia, or the appropriately named Armenia Khan, you were into areas where there were likely to be large Armenian populations. And with the expulsion of many Muslims from the border towns, Armenians had been the major immigrant group taking their place. By the year 1000, new apostolic bishops were consecrated at Antioch and Tarsus to care for the Armenian flock that lived in the vicinity, while apostolic monasteries began popping up in places like the Amanus Mountains. Ecclesiastical harangues were regularly hurled 
across the centuries, and this period of heavy Armenian migration led to clashes between various Orthodox clergymen and the new heretical arrivals. And yet, when political cooperation was needed, relics were exchanged, churches were sponsored, and messages of unity were spread. This pattern of cooperation and resentment is set to continue during the next century. The various rulers of Armenia who'd accepted Roman pensions brought with them huge retinues. Senekerim, the ruler of Vaspurakan, was said to have brought 14,000 men with him, and that doesn't include women and children. Apparently, his family, his court, his clergy, and his soldiers all migrated to the empire. Even if the numbers are exaggerated, they must have been substantial because he was given extensive lands around Sebastea. We suspect that some of the estates doled out to the new settlers were confiscated from the Phocas and Skleros clans, another attempt by Basil to dilute their influence. The new Armenian cliques would intermarry and draw complaints from the Orthodox clergy, and when the Turks invade, many of these Armenians will flee for Cilicia, where an independent Armenian state will establish itself. Again, some historians lay the blame at Basil's door arguing that he introduced a large non-Roman element into the borderlands who had little interest in defending the empire when it was in trouble. But again, this argument doesn't convince me. As we saw with the Arab conquest of Syria and Palestine, loyalty to Romania has little to do with the dynamics of dealing with a rapid conquest, and there was no way Basil could have anticipated the coming of such a danger. If the Turks had never arrived, it's most likely that the descendants of these Armenians would have sought high office in Constantinople. This would have demanded conversion to orthodoxy and the development of Roman cultural norms. Within a few generations, they would have been as Byzantine as anyone else. We've seen this before. The Phocas, Skleros, and Korkuas families probably all came from the mountains originally, but by the time he was a leading general, Nicephorus was instructing his subordinates not to trust those lazy Armenians with sentry duty. As we wrap things up, we can't really escape the shadow of the Seljuk Turks. Without their arrival, the Romans would have had to face the long-term question of what to do with Armenia. The ideology of Constantinople was firmly wrapped around orthodoxy. To have heretical peoples living under their rule for centuries would have brought change. Either a Romanization of the mountains, or an alteration in the imperial stance on conformity. But in the end, none of these issues had to be confronted, and for the remainder of their time there, the Romans will govern the Armenian kingdoms in a sensible way allowing the locals to continue their way of life undisturbed while occupying the key sites and mountain passes. As some listeners have commented, Basil's conquests do have an anticlimactic feel to them. Hundreds and hundreds of miles of new territory have just been added to the empire, but it seems to mean very little to the overall narrative. This is, though, how Basil would have wanted it. He did not share our bird's-eye view of history, 
he had no interest in recapturing lost provinces. He was born in the palace, to a dynasty that had made it their home. His goal was to keep Constantinople safe from any threats who could physically march to it. And during his lifetime, he was entirely successful. Next time, we'll have a look at some related issues. There is a bit more to talk about with the government and demographics of the non-Armenian Eastern Territories. And we need to discuss the disposition of the army and answer a host of listener questions. 